when you you rebel against your parents and all of that uh, animosity you might feel when you're breaking away and growing up as a teenager was kind of channeled through the violin. It became a nightly battle with my father of whether I would practice or whether I wouldn't. And it always came down to, well, if you're really going to quit, you have to tell your teacher. And that was always the crux because I could never tell my teacher because I, I loved her so much. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. I'm your host, Joe McHugh. For this podcast, we get to meet two talented musicians, Mick Maloney and Athena Turgis, who have done much to preserve and popularize traditional Irish music. Mick grew up in Ireland. He's a wonderful singer, and he plays the mandolin and four-string banjo. He also holds a doctorate in folklore from the University of Pennsylvania and teaches at New York University. He serves as a consultant for numerous cultural arts organizations and music festivals, both here and abroad, including the Smithsonian Institution. In 1999, he received the National Endowment for the Arts National Heritage Fellowship Award, America's highest honor in the folk and traditional arts. Athena Turgis was born in the United States, and she has been playing the violin since she was very young. When she was 16, she recorded her first music CD of Scottish and original tunes with fellow fiddler Laura Risk. She later performed with the Broadway production of Riverdance as the show's solo fiddler. I first met Mick in the early 1980s when we both served on the faculty of the Augusta Heritage Arts Program, which is held each summer on the campus of Davis and Elkins College in Elkins, West Virginia. I was teaching a course in storytelling while Mick was teaching Irish music. We met again recently when he came to Olympia, Washington with Athena to perform a concert. We begin with Mick talking about what drew him to traditional music as a young man growing up in Ireland, and then Athena tells us how she was enchanted by this timeless music. I'm Mick Maloney and I was raised in County Limerick in the southwest of Ireland, and In the immediate family, there certainly wasn't anything that you would call traditional music. In most most families, there were people who who sang uh, and who told stories and sometimes who played an instrument. And in my own particular family, um, the instrument would have been the piano, I suppose, and and the songs would have been popular songs, trotted out at, at, at festive occasions. I mean, at a party in Ireland then, this is before television, uh, everyone had to do something, and if you sang, you sang, and if you if you danced, you danced, and if you played an instrument, you played an instrument, and if you didn't do any of those things, you told a story or a recitation, but you couldn't get away without doing something, and with sometimes disastrous artistic consequences, but nobody cared. It was all very convivial, and but not in, in, in there was no traditional music in the immediate family, and I picked up that really a love of that from listening to to musicians and first of all in Limerick City and after that in other parts of Ireland. So you were coming of age about what time what years like yours 18, Well I started 19. I was interested first of all the first kind of folk music as I've ever interested in was the Amer- American folk music that we heard in Ireland um, for the most part on on a station called Radio Luxembourg and at late at night it came in and uh, we had the old the big radios there they were really big that before transistorized component parts were invented and 
God, you'd need a wheelbarrow to carry the radio around from room to room. It was that big. Uh, and it was a Ferranti radio, remember. And late at night, uh, the stations would come in from abroad and Radio Luxembourg was where we heard the Weavers sing Goodnight Irene and I heard Lonnie Donegan sing Did Your Chewy Come Lose Its Flavour on the Bedpost Overnight and Skiffle was the big thing at the time in England which was sort of derived in a way from the American folk revival, if you will, the songs of Lead Belly, the songs of Woody Guthrie and and that was my first interest in, in folk music, what you would call traditional or folk music. And, and uh, eventually it was to, to lead to an interest in Irish music, but it was not in the family. Right, and the, and the Clancy brothers were part of that time too, weren't they? They were in the United States for my family. The first time I heard the Clancy brothers was in 1962, I believe. And it was their Columbia record, The Boys Won't Leave the Girls Alone, mm. which was, according to Liam Clancy, the only record they ever really rehearsed for and they had some very good musicians Bruce Langhorn was on the guitar and Eric Weisberg was on the five string banjo and what they were doing was performing songs they would have learned perhaps in Ireland or maybe learned in America from people like Kenny Goldstein who was my mentor later on from his collection um, and they they were putting them into a, a format which was pretty much unknown in Ireland at the time, adding choruses to the songs, singing harmonies, adding rhythm and adding the guitar and the five string banjo uh, and presenting them with an exuberance uh, and the vitality which came from their own background in amateur theatre and all that coalesced in Greenwich Village where they were originally actors. And we heard that in Ireland at the time and... Uh, and they gave us a confidence. We needed, we needed a dose of confidence then. We were in a fairly grim economic phase at the end of it. Since independence, we had really struggled. And um, they gave us a shot of confidence in who we were, what we had. And that was eventually to lead to a kind of a folk revitalization in the 1960s in Ireland. And I was certainly influenced by that. And when the Clancy Brothers came to Limerick, I was among the first people to buy a ticket and sat in the front row of the Savoy Cinema. And when they bounced out on stage in their iron sweaters and sang Brennan on the Moor, I was more excited than I'd ever been in my life, I think, by any form of song. So this idea that you grew up in a, in a family that whatever music was going on was very contemporary music, more or less, or maybe Tim Pan Alley. I mean, I grew up in a family where my grandfather sang songs from Tin Pan Alley, Paddle Your Own Canoe, and some of these sentimental songs. But we, we never heard, even when Irish Eyes Are Smiling, wasn't in the repertoire of a, a man who was born and raised in Hell's Kitchen to a very Irish family. It's just not what they sang. There was no real traditional music. Well, my father, his party pieces were Frankie and Johnny and, <laughs> uh, and North to Alaska. And, and he would recite Robert Service poems. Dangerous Dan McGrew and the cremation. case on the barroom floor and oh. the cremation of Sam McGee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were huge in Ireland then. Uh, and, you know, the reciting was a big part of the national culture, really. And, and reciting is coming back in a big way in Ireland now with the singing circles around the country. But uh, in, every, in every party you would hear at least one recitation or a monologue, as you might call it. And you told me a story you may not remember, but this is many, many years ago. We were at Augusta, where you were teaching. And uh, so we're talking about this contemporary aspect, but then you had said something about having uncles, I believe, who were dressed as girls 
in the very early years of their lives, and this had something to do with the changelings. Absolutely, and uh, there was this this belief in rural Ireland that existed really up to the well, certainly I would think the 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 middle part of the twentieth century in some places, and certainly in the early part of the twentieth century that. Uh, that that you know, if your if your if your child if your child got sick, it might be the fairies who'd actually taken the real child, and, and it was a lookalike that was that was substituted. And this, for various reasons, applied only to male children or to nursing mothers. And and uh, it was certainly a belief system that prevailed to my grandmother's time. And pictures of uh, of my granduncles where they were dressed in, in petticoats until they were maybe five or six. And that was to fool the... Yeah, but that was quite common in rural Ireland. Uh-huh. So you've been playing this music for for many years. You've played with some wonderful uh, fiddlers, and this is a radio series about the violin and, and, and mm-hmm. cello and viola. And I remember one of the first people you played with that I, I became aware of and was Eugene O'Donnell? Yeah. I've always felt very comfortable playing. I mean, my instrument, my main instrument is the tenor banjo. And I've always felt comfortable playing with fiddle players. The fingering is the same because from the 19, early 1960s onward, we started to tune the tenor banjo in Ireland uh, an octave below a fiddle. And uh, that made the, the whole repertoire of old tunes that had been composed by fiddle players very easily accessible, not that there's anything particularly easy about playing any instrument at a high level, but relatively easier to play um, than, than, say, if you use the conventional tuning of the tenor banjo, where you'd, you'd have some fingering issues, especially in some of, the, some of the tunes in certain keys. And those issues disappeared when you tuned the, the fiddle an octave, or the banjo an octave below fiddle, the tenor banjo, four-string banjo, of course. Is what I'm talking about, and from the without even knowing that from from early on playing, I felt very comfortable playing with fiddle players, and later on when I started to teach the tender banjo at Augusta, the Augusta Heritage Festival in West Virginia, where I met you first, uh, then uh, I started to realise why I was comfortable playing with fiddle players, and you when you start teaching something, you start to reflect more on on the practicalities of it and i i think that when you become a teacher then you you learn why you do things up to that point you just do them uh, and it, it was very logical uh, that but then there's also the, the question of swing and 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 uh, there are other issues beyond the fingering but i've always felt comfortable playing with fiddle players and you're using a plectrum mm-hmm. a pick and also it just inherently it's a percussion instrument I mean, it's built on a drum. Well, the nice thing about about the combo of the fiddle and, and the banjo is that the minute you hit a note on the banjo, it's decaying right away. Uh, and you can you can somehow counter that by hitting double stops and having and, and altering the, the the intensity with which you strike the string so that the notes might ring on a little a little longer. But, but the the actual note is starting to decay from the moment you hit it. Whereas the fiddle player has the capacity to play legato music and stretch out the note uh, with the bow. And that's why when you're playing with the fiddle player like Athena Turgis here. Um, when we're playing a lot with these days, um, you can have a kind of a conversation that combines percussion, uh, staccato and legato playing. And it's very exhilarating. I find it you know, very musically interesting, satisfying and just fun. Well, it's a great opportunity to bring Athena in and tell us who you are and where you were born and raised and music in your family. And then I'd like to come back to this very subject. Sure. 
Well, my name is Athena Turgis, and uh, I was born in New York City, but I was raised in San Francisco. And my great-grandmother arrived uh, in San Francisco, and my grandmother was born there, my father was born there, and myself and three brothers were all born in San Fran. And um, I was, uh, I started on the fiddle when I was four years old with the Suzuki method. My father had played classical music in high school. And And Turgis? Turgis is a Greek name, Derziotis, and I still have family in the southern Peloponnesus. And I have, uh, in my family, there's four children, we're each named after part of the, uh, the, our, our heritage. So I got the Greek name, Athena. Lars for the Norwegian side, I'm, I'm a quarter Norwegian. Ben Ezra for the Jewish side, and Sean for the Irish side. So we have all the bases covered. And my father's uncle played the fiddle at a very high level. He played in the San Jose Symphony. And he, he, uh, he was a chemist, and my father was a chemist as well. But music was always really uh, important to my father. And my uncle Leo would come around on on uh, holidays and would always bring his violin. And his sister Susie played uh, the mandolin, and she would play. Uh, they were the Jewish side of the family, but she would she would play all kinds of different Christmas songs and Hanukkah songs and Jewish songs. And you can kiss me on a Monday, a Tuesday, a Wednesday. And she would get the mandolin and do all the little triplets on the mandolin and get us all to sing to play these folk songs. And uh, my brother, I played the fiddle. My brother Lars also played the well, the violin at that time. My brother Ben Ezra played piano. And uh, Sean was the youngest one. He basically was, was banging on pots and pans and eventually became a really, really fantastic uh, and in-demand uh, percussionist, mainly in the Middle Eastern and Turkish uh, traditions. But music was around um, every, every holiday we would have... Um, we would we would play music and some of it was classical music we do bach was really uh important in the family and um of course with the suzuki method there was a lot of of bach and corelli and some of the, you know fantastic composers and these you know these composers now that i play a lot of irish music you know there's there's quite a lot of crossover between some of the baroque and some of the uh some of the more stately pieces of irish music so it was i was exposed at a very early age studied suzuki method and a wonderful, wonderful teacher, Myra Wysanski, who was Eastern European, but born in, in, in San Francisco. And I studied with her. But, you know, like all kids, when you're growing up and playing music kind of in a vacuum by yourself uh, with just one teacher, you know, we got bored. And and I got bored with it, and I was always threatening to quit. And this was something that was not allowed. My father was very adamant that we had to practice. At first it was the half an hour a day and then it was 40 minutes a day. And it was 40 minutes of really, uh, I mean, all of the, of, of the, um, you know, when you, you rebel against your parents and all of that uh, animosity you might feel when you're breaking away and growing up as a teenager was kind of channeled through the violin. It became a nightly battle with my father of whether I would practice or whether I wouldn't. And it always came down to, well, if you're really going to quit, you have to tell your teacher. And that was always the crux because I could never tell my teacher because I, I loved her so much. And I and so I kept playing, but it was a real struggle. And by eight or nine years old, I was pretty much ready to to pack it in. And you can understand, you know, when all the kids were out playing, I had to come back and practice. And it was um, always, you know, con- concerts preparing. And I always felt it was a sacrifice. And so, in desperation, my dad got me a few lessons with um, Kate Reed, who's an Irish fiddle player, but also did some some old time fiddle playing in San Francisco. And I took a couple lessons from her, but I didn't really take to it 
that much. I learned uh, ragtime Annie and a few things, but it was still in a vacuum. I hadn't, there was no community. There was no, I didn't hear a session. I didn't hear people playing together. It was always just me and a teacher and I didn't get it. And so without me knowing my father and Kate Reed, they, they conspired um, this, a little trick. And she asked, would I please go with her as her babysitter? And I, I used to babysit her, her young daughter. And would I go with her to this camp and, and mind her daughter while she was teaching at this camp? And so for the pocket money, I agreed to go. Well, that was the Valley of the Moon Scottish Fiddling School in, uh, at that time, down, down by Santa Cruz, led by Alistair Fraser. And that year, there was Buddy McMaster, the fantastic Cape Breton fiddle player, um, and there was Marie de Mooney. And with my class, my Suzuki training, that my ear was, I had great, uh, a really quick ear, and I, would, I had already learned to, to learn music by ear. And so I picked this up really quickly, and Marie took me under her wing, and she, I followed her around for the entire week. Uh, that poor child I was supposed to mind. I don't know what happened to her, but luckily she, she survived. And I just fell in love with Marie. And here was this woman who's just full of joy for her music, joy for, you know, what she does completely herself. She didn't have to be somebody else or perform. And it was all, she was always surrounded by, by this groups of people. And it was all about the, the community and of inclusiveness. And, um, and I just, I was hooked. And at the end of that week, there was a, a, a competition that was the thing you did then with Scottish music it was all based on, on on competing and I I entered and I t- and I tied for first and I went off to the nationals and I and I, I won that and and I got a check for five hundred dollars and the and the plane fare to, to Alexandria Virginia and I was pretty much hooked I said wow what fun so you mentioned all these people at the camp as companions on this journey yes what was the companion as far as your violin what were you playing then? What was the instrument that was in your hands while you're going through this transformation? Do you remember? I was playing an instrument that was made by James Cave, who is a, a, a San Francisco luthier, and he was making a lot of instruments then for the San Francisco Symphony. And when I was about, uh, the time when I needed a, a, a full-size violin, I think I was about 10 or 11 at the time, and my father asked me, he said, do you want to go to college or do you want this violin? And so I said, of course, I want this violin. And I never did go to college, but I I played that violin all the way up until I met uh, another instrument, the instrument that I have in my hands now, which was made by another California luthier, um, made by by, uh, James Wimmer from Santa Barbara. And he is making incredible uh, instruments for a long time, but he started making these very interesting five-string violins and all kinds of different hardanger fiddles as well he makes cellos he makes uh, violas he makes all kinds of instruments but his five strings um, are really the most beautiful uh, five string fiddles I've ever I've ever played and ever seen and I I just just from playing at the one time that I became mine did you keep the other violin I still have the other violin and mm-hmm. I love that violin um, it was a it was kind of a, an interesting story because the the luthier James uh, cave who made these instruments he, the instruments became very very popular in San Francisco for a period of about five or six years and all the symphony players were getting them but then about a few years after they'd buy them they'd come back to him and say I'm sticking out in the orchestra I'm not blending in it's too it, uh, it, it has it's too focused of a sound I need to, to blend in more and he was so 
demoralized by the people coming back to him that he actually had a nervous breakdown and stopped making instruments altogether. Um, and I love that instrument, but I, I, I prefer this instrument here that I'm playing now. So going back to when we were talking about this combination of the violin and the banjo, my wife and I play fiddle and banjo, but she plays the old claw hammer style, mm-hmm. from the Appalachian style. And Mick plays a very different style. And I remember a story that uh, Frank Sinatra used to tell, where he would um, he liked to get just slightly ahead of the beat. Mm-hmm. And he liked to play there because it gave an energy and urgency. And his greatest difficulty was finding uh, drummers that wouldn't chase him. Because mm-hmm. as soon as they chased him, he'd have to speed up a little bit more. Yes. So he needed to have a rock-solid yeah. rhythm so he could push that edge. Mm-hmm. Is that something going on between the way you two play? Do you tend to do that? Or how would you describe this relationship with Mick? I would say it's it's a it's absolutely a dance of 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 pulling and pushing constantly. And I think that's that's why the music swings and that's that's why we it's it's like this conversation and he'll he'll push a note and I might pull hang back a little bit and it's always either before or or ahead of the beat but in general we both like to swing our music quite a bit um, but because of the percussive nature of the banjo he can kind of anticipate something and by by me holding the note and dragging it a little bit later it creates this this kind of swing um, that's just really really fun to play with but it's really to me not so much about the instrument it's really about the the musician I mean it's really about the person playing it and um and I think we just have a have a have a way you know we have a similar taste and and how we like to play well Athena sets down a, a rock steady rhythm I mean her technique is just astonishingly solid and uh, it gives me a lot of freedom to bounce off that with the backbeats and uh, and and also double stops I love to hit more than one string at the same time and uh, and the banjo and and the mandolin too which I, I play a lot with with Athena um, there's something about the mandolin sound with the eight strings that's uh, it's a different it's a different dynamic again and it can be very subtle but it's about this it's kind of interplay and we never really rehearse in the strict sense of the word it just sort of happens they have to be tunes that we like and there're certain songs and certain tunes that are so perfect they've had all as we say in Ireland with that all the corners knocked off them over the years and you're left with something really elementally beautiful and uh, and there's certain tunes and and certain songs you'd never get tired of you just wouldn't and they're constantly being reshaped as you play them, and uh, it's it's something that that is that that is it's really beyond technique. It's a, it's a question of of your own relationship to the music, and it's a sense of of fun, but also a sense of deep love of it. That's just it's just beautiful, and uh, if you both share the same sensibility uh, aesthetically. And you, and you love the music. You, I mean, you you love it just because you love it. It's really art for its own sake. Um, it's so enjoyable. I really love playing with Athena. We could play the same tune 50 times over. It would be a little bit different every time. And I think that's true of most musicians in any idiom that you're always reshaping the music. But it's especially true of traditional music. Sometimes I go by people in a session playing tunes Banish Misfortune or whatever it might be that have been played forever. 
in these sessions. And I, this image pops up into my mind of uh, these uh, Tibetan monasteries and these guys going by and hitting the prayer wheels, just spinning them. And something that would seem to have no more use in this world right now, and yet is vitally important that it's done, the spinning of these tunes. And, and it doesn't do anything. Last night was... In terms of our physical, supposedly, survival. For me, last night was really, really enjoyable, but also made me made me think a lot because, you know, we did a concert um the University of Washington and we played played about three or four songs that we've done many times before. And then we played about three songs that we haven't done uh, maybe once before and one we never did before. And I was struck by the ones that we had done many, many times before with different different groups and different ensembles. And you know he, he he we played it differently last night than we'd ever done it before. And of course, each time it's a little bit different. But I think also because we hadn't seen each other for a while, and you're you're testing out. It's like you're meeting for the first time because it's different when we meet in person than when you're playing. The instruments meet there, and and I was struck there was all this space in the in the music and a lot of a lot of punctuation and and space and and waiting and then I both hitting this punctuating in the same moments you know and that only comes with a lot of experience playing but it was almost like hearing the songs for the first time again it, it, there's also another issue here too is the whole issue of accompaniment and uh, in in I think both Appalachian music and Irish music now we're we're sort of used to having accompaniment a piano or a guitar or in the case of the Irish music, the bazooki too. And that's lovely. And a good accompanist, you know, and, and percussion instruments like the baron, the goatskin drum, they're all wonderful and, and they all add something. But there's something elemental about playing without accompaniment. And in a sense, you provide your own accompaniments uh, through the backbeat and through uh, just rhythmic shifts. And it affords endless possibility, doesn't it? For, for variation, which you don't have with even the best accompanist. And I love I love them both. Uh, it's just it's just a different conversation mm-hmm. when you've just two people playing and and exploring and and it's not something that's intellectual at all. Once you have a certain get beyond sort of the practice stage of your instrument and you're comfortable with playing your instrument, you're not thinking about technique at all, really. Um, you're you're just thinking about this this interesting conversation and the fact that there's an audience there that lifts you up if they're mm-hmm. attentive and if they're if they're into it mm-hmm. and into the moment, uh, it, it's 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 just about as, as satisfying an experience as you can ever have. It's quite different than playing in a room together, which is very satisfying too. Just playing on your own, but with an audience that's in the moment, I, it's I it, it's an overdone word, transcendental, isn't it? But I mean, it really does transcend anything that you can just talk about in technical or practical terms it's really it's it's uplifting and it's what it's what art is 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 about for me anyway Mm -hmm. it's those it's those joyful moments of micro improvisation or whatever you call it Mm -hmm. and I think you know the the fiddle is such a perfect a perfect match for a singer because I think the fiddle and the voice they share so much together but then the fiddle has infinite possibilities you can play staccato notes you can you can hit the double stops and make really punctuated you know hits with the fiddle you can do these long drones that are just almost inaudible you know and I have the fifth string so you have the low string these growling sort of drones that can get bigger and then you can play melodies as well so it's such a versatile 
instrument for 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 singing and you know when, when mixed people often say oh I, I like the way you accompany songs and i don't think of myself as an accompanist at all uh maybe that's a default i don't i'm not sure but i i when we're playing and mick is, is singing a song i always feel it's it's really we're both singing the song that's how i feel about it because i feel i listen to every word and i feel like i'm i'm telling the story with the fiddle. We're talking now about, about songs as distinct from strictly instrumental, but it's not that different. It's not. And, and uh, I think Athena hit the nail on the head here. Um, it's another voice, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In these days, when I was in my teenage years, my 20s, my 30s, you went out to buy a stereo, you got a couple nice speakers and a stereo. Today, you buy a stereo, you have to get this big woofer this very large piece, so it's three pieces you're going to have. I think we have become much more um, almost, well, addicted might be the wrong word, to that base hmm. in the culture, in our, in our sonic environment. And when you are playing together, you're talking about accompaniment, but in a way you're talking about there's no bass here. You're playing kind of in the same range. Now you've got the fifth string, which is giving you a fifth down, but you don't have that guitar, you don't have that drum, this is what we were talking about. But we do have a tenor banjo, and you've got a C string, and you've got mixed voice, which is which is is he can play baritone, he can sing baritone, and he <laughs> so can also sing. <laughs> I mean, we have a huge range between the between the two of us. Yeah, but it, it, it but you're right. Still, it's it's not like uh, you know some of the worst experiences we've had with sound people over the years, and we've had great sound people. We've also had some some sound people who didn't understand the music. And uh, a lot of them were, we call them rock and rollers, you know, and they're looking for a bass that isn't there. And, and, and they're, they're, they're desperate to produce it somehow. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we have this kind of sonic chaos going on. And uh, we're very upset at that usually. But uh, I think what you're saying is that there isn't that conventional bass that's in, say, rock music, and people are so used to listening to that today in world music. And, I mean, some people say that the day the music died is when bass and drums became obligatory in, 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 in cities in the world, that you can't get a gig without bass and drums. And uh, we have avoided that in Irish music. Yeah. Yeah. So the subtlety, the, those fine nuances are there in, in those spaces. I think you hit the right nail on the head, space. And you you used it earlier. There's a lot of space when you're playing with just one other person. And it's a tremendous, uh, there's a tremendous, uh, endless series of possibilities uh, in creating, creating, you know, gaps in that space, as it were. Like when Mick mentioned the decay Mm. of the instrument, that's where the true sound of any instrument actually comes into fruition, is in, as it rings. And if you don't leave the space for the instruments to ring, you're you're missing most of the beauty of an instrument, and and I think that's why you need that space. And and playing with Mick has changed my playing. It's playing. It's changed my style well, of playing. It's, it's changed my mandolin playing in particular. We've been talking about the banjo, but uh, the mandolin, of course, tuned uh, exactly like the fiddle. It's a double course, double course of strings, and you would think that there would be duplication there. And you would think, well, why have a mandolin and a fiddle together? It's actually an exhilarating combination, again, mm-hmm. because of the percussive nature of the sound. You're striking the notes with a pick and you're bowing the notes. Mm-hmm. And I would never get tired of playing mandolin and fiddle duets. Absolutely. I would play them for hours. Yeah. They're just, they, they afford the same possibilities as a banjo and the sound, the, the, the juxtapositions are more subtle. And there's one other thing going on here. 
you you have the uh, violin which can play in the key truly in tune which you rarely do because every tradition has its own little micro tunings and that's what makes them sound different like the cape bretoners always play the b flats a little bit a little bit low there's certain fiddle players in the irish tradition who always play their d's a little sharp and it distinguishes them instantly and it would never it wouldn't be the same without that I don't, it's very rare that you'd find it exactly in tune. And fiddle players who play with flute players tend to always make the top Ds a little bit sharp because they push with the flute. I mean, it's always changing. And you also are able to slide up and mm-hmm. down, which gives a great deal of expression to the music. Mm-hmm. Now you have the banjo or the mandolin. It's a whole different way of making music. So how does that, how do those two different opportunities at which each instrument offers you come together? Is there anything you want to say about that? Well, I think we're back to the fact that, that, that one is a bowed instrument and one is struck with a pick. And, and the, the, the way of creating the sounds is essentially different, but very complementary. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, two fiddles together are wonderful too. I'm not sure the two banjos together will ever be wonderful. <laughs> you know, I've been searching for that for years and still find it elusive. But uh, two mandolins, I've never tried, frankly. Uh, you know, I never had another mandolin player sit with me for an hour. Two banjo players can, you know, that's challenging. But a mandolin and a fiddle are just fantastic. So have you tried to pick up a fiddle yourself? No, no. That's and when did you know that you weren't going to go there? I've never even held a bow in my hand. Right. Because I've always played with fiddlers who were so ridiculously good that I wouldn't even dare. It's one of the reasons I don't dance. I mean, the or dancers who've sing. danced with me over the years, like Michael Flatley and Donnie Golden, I mean, how would you even bother after that? Yeah. So I never, I, I, when you hear somebody like Athena or Eugene O'Donnell or James Kelly playing the fiddle, you say, hell no. Why, Miss Carl? Why would I even think of such a thing? So it wasn't the fact that. There's some diabolical connection to the fiddle. Let's talk about that. Is, does that idea exist in Ireland that the fiddle has some connection to the dark side? No, we leave that to the Protestants. I grew up in a Catholic tradition. You know, we don't, we don't, uh, we don't think that at all. Now, a bad fiddle player is another matter. So that's a dark side of its own. We're not even going to go there with the banjo players. We're going to leave that subject out. Leave that, yeah, leave that for another day. But you know, just going back to your comment about tuning and 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 it's a very interesting topic. And I never even really thought about it that much. But I realized, you know, the constraints of the tuning with the with the with a fretted instrument really have are not constraining for me at all because it doesn't prevent me from coloring the notes in any way. And in fact, it kind of even accentuates it. Because just like a like you know a double reeded instrument or a, uh, an accordion, you know we play with Billy McComiskey, All Ireland champion accordion player, and his notes are, are sometimes, depending on which notes they are, quite quite wide. There's quite a, quite a wide difference in the tuning between the two reeds, the double reeds, and it adds a fullness to that, and it doesn't take away at all from what color I want to add to the notes, and and so not at all. And in fact, having that framework of the corded the chord, that's just a given is quite liberating because it allows me to, to, to nuance the little tunings any way I want and, and, it, and it brings it out even more. Yeah, and with the, with the eight strings of the mandolin, uh, I mean, you could almost say that it's almost impossible for every note to be, to be in tune. But, yeah. but there would be micro, micro shall we say, um, 
diversions from In other from words, the, the opening, field. you could allegedly get them perfect, but because where the frets are and how the bridge is... Yeah. Well, they, nearly all Gibsons are, are slightly inaccurate, but it doesn't, uh, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't take away from the beauty of it. Uh, and uh, another thing about the mandolin is that you can whack all the strings uh, uh, on a chord. So if you're, if you're a tune in, in the key of G, it affords endless possibilities if you're up on the, on the top string or, the, or the, the, second string, the second set of strings on the A. And the A's of, of, of hitting chords. And that, uh, I don't, you know, that allied to the fiddle, I mean, it just adds a tremendous fullness. And it will be episodic. You won't be doing it for very long. Uh, but in all the keys, you can you can maybe hit six strings, and and that uh, I love playing the mandolin with that with the tina with that because it's just a lot of bounce, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's not something we intellectualize. It sounds when I'm when I'm talking like this here, it sounds like you're thinking about it in your sleep almost, and that's not the way it happens. It just happens spontaneously, and then you notice it. Mm-hmm. But you were saying when you begin to teach something, you do reflect oh, you differently. Do. That, 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 yeah, and maybe that's what we're you know, yeah, and, and that started for me in in the Augusta Heritage Festival in Davis and Elkins College in West Virginia, where I taught for a good many of the years. I was ended up coordinator, for, you know, for twenty five years, and in the latter stages of that, I didn't teach as much as I did in the in the first phase. But it was in the first ten years that I really learned. What not so much what I was doing, but what I should be doing, <laughs> and then uh, you become more self-aware. Then that's why I'm able to even have this conversation now, is because you develop a, ser- a self-awareness by teaching. Mm-hmm. Let's listen now to a portion of Mick and Athena's concert that they performed at Traditions Cafe when they came to visit us in Olympia, Washington.
In my life as a classical, starting off as classical and moving to, to traditional music, both Scottish, you know, Cape Breton music and Irish music, and I've taught a lot of my years, and, and I often get classical violinists who have caught the bug, the folk music bug, and they want to learn this music, they want to learn Irish music. And it's been such a challenge for me to come up with ways to help classical players um, learn how to to gain the, the stylistic skill sets of, of this type of music. And and my conclusion is it's almost impossible without a, a real immersion in, in just, you have to really have heard it at kind of a younger age and soak it up because you have to learn it by ear. But it's all about the bow, the bow technique. And, and, um, and the reason why it's so hard to be taught um, later on in life is because there are no there's no schools, there's no exercises for fiddle players. How do you get those staccato things? How do you, you know, you can work on a triplet on a bow and maybe you can eventually get that, but that's just one little trick. And every fiddle player will play the same tune and they'll bow it a million different ways. And that's almost impossible to teach unless you kind of grew up with that. Um, and that's sort of one of the main differences that I find in my classical training and then and then being immersed in, in Irish and Scottish music is that that you can't write that down. You know, you can follow a bowing, but unless you, unless you can sing, sing it, and 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 uh, lilt it, then you can't really get it. And so when I'm teaching violinists, the first thing we do is is lilt tunes. But the bowing and explain lilting in the Irish tradition. And this grew maybe in places where they just didn't have access to instruments, and they would lilt for dances. Is that my understanding? My grandfather used to do that. It's the only thing Irish. We didn't even know what it was, but he would just kind of be working, and he would be doing that. And we never knew what that was growing up in the 1950s. Well, there is there is the the tradition of lilting when there were no instruments around and you were creating a, a, a sort of a music for people to dance to uh, when there were no instruments there. But to tell the truth, every every musician in 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 the Irish tradition is a lilter because when you meet another musician and you might be sitting like we're sitting now or walking on the street and you say that you know the one that goes diddly dum. So in that sense, we're all lilters, and that we 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 don't always have the instrument in hand, you know. So we 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 mount the music to one another. And this could be a broad generalization, but my experience is that in the Appalachian tradition, everybody knows the name of the tunes, but often among the Irish players, they don't know the names of the tunes. Often, or they'll maybe do it like that. They'll communicate the tune, but maybe they don't know the name. The, the name has never been that important in, in Irish music because it's an oral tradition and it's how it sounds that's important. The tune itself is more important than the name, whereas in more literate traditions like the Scottish one, for instance, where a lot of the fiddlers, especially the ones who had patrons, they had their own little tune books and they all had a name. Mm-hmm. So nearly every Scottish musician I've ever met knows the names of their tunes and nearly every Irish musician I've ever met does not know the names. Mm-hmm. And that includes myself. Uh, and, and I'd just like to, to, to follow up on what Athena was saying. In an, any oral or oral tradition, uh, there are not the same formalized canons of, of, of what's excellent. There usually is an intrinsic knowledge that's, that's possessed and passed on by the practitioners and the kind of uh, the, the inner circle of savants around the music. 
And that's rarely formalised. I mean, you won't find an Irish music session in a pub in New York reviewed by the New York Times the next day. It's not going to happen. So the, the canons of excellence are contained within the community itself. This is a great segue into something I wanted to ask you about. And it's kind of a difficult subject, I think. I don't know what you'll say about it. What's been happening in the last 10 or 20 years is you have this huge number of young people who have been trained with Suzuki who have then gone on to formal training and possibly even gone to Juilliard or Curtis. I mean, really have done the whole program. Then they look around and they see, there's maybe no place for me to play this music. I go to an audition. There might have been 20 people 20 years ago. There's 500 people now for that job. Then they discover folk music. They put these little uh, groups together, and they've got the chops. They have technical abilities far beyond any folk musician I ever knew. And because our system is so commercialized now, especially large festivals and even some music uh, camps and so forth, this becomes the standard of excellence. So I have this sense of older players who had a different approach to the music uh, just sort of being sidelined, put on the shelf by these young players who can just play the hell out of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Any thoughts you have on that? Well, there's, there's always been that tension, hasn't there, between people who are technically excellent and people who have, have soul and uh, who have a, a kind of connection that's almost ineffable to the central core of the music. Um, there was a great song written by Mike Herron of the Incredible String Band back in the 60s, and it went, Oh, you know all the notes and you sing all the words, but you never quite learn the song, she said. And I can tell by the sadness in your eyes that you never quite learn the song. And a lot of these people you're talking about never quite learn the song. And it's very hard to put that in... in in strictly uh, technical terms. And it goes back to what Athena was saying, that it goes beyond technique. And the reason this, this music is so, is so attractive is because the secrets yield themselves up very slowly and mysteriously. And, and uh, you know good playing when you hear it, and it's not always easy to, to say why. And I think I'm really talking about the gatekeepers. Well, that's the person suddenly in charge of deciding who plays this venue mm -hmm. or who, you know, we recorded somebody not long ago who talked about the first recording of violin music. This is his specialty at the University of North Carolina. And he said it was just amazing. You'd have these highly regarded solo violinists of the day. And suddenly they record on a wax cylinder or on a platter and they weren't in tune. And their timing was all over the place, and they were horrified. And everybody was like, "What was?" As if we weren't really good. Of course, in that other context, they were sublime. And uh, and so, how the technology of just recording is changes the idea of what is excellence. Because you brought that word up, and I think that's a is such a, a difficult word to understand within the arts, especially when you're talking about something that comes out of a folk tradition. Uh, just anything you want to say on well, that? Well, it applies to any world music that is old and that has been passed on orally. It's not just Irish music or Appalachian music. It's not just early jazz. It's all, all great music. Um, the, 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 the canons of excellence are buried very deep in the tradition. You have to literally spend a lifetime listening to it and 
you'll never maybe quite get to, to get to the place you want to be. But you'll, you know, some people are more advanced in that journey, and there's endless diversity. And uh, but it, you you will come a point on the journey when you'll know it right away when you hear it. That's brilliant. I mean, I this is something that that I I feel very strongly about because I lived it. I mean, I was that young child, you know, kind of really quick learner, you know, top of the class. My I was pushed into the, the youth symphony and my my teacher was really pushing me to follow that classical path. And then I de- I kind of derailed and went to the Scottish world and I excelled at that too, you know, and I and I recorded my first album at sixteen, which was all original music. We're pushing boundaries. Here I am in San Francisco where we were exposed in a lark in the morning music camp. You get Greek music one day and Bulgarian music the next day and then we're getting some flamenco you know, things or some Afghani singers over here and then you have so many influences and we all want to do a little bit of that and I grew up where in an environment where that was all okay and all encouraged that whole melting pot and that fusion and what you ended up with was a lot of really mediocre world music groups because nobody had been to these countries and nobody had really spent any time and nobody really knew what this music was about and nobody really cared there's no importance put on that and um, you know and I feel and I recorded an album when I was 16, like I said, of, of, of this music. And I'm very proud of that album. It's something completely different. But I don't call that Scottish or Irish or any other tradition. It's really very uniquely Californian. And, and I'm proud of that. But it, when I discovered Irish music and I went to Ireland, I carried with me this, um, this real confidence that I had developed here in California where everything we did was really encouraged and, and applauded and we had audiences all over and I carried that with me. And I tell you what, I was humbled really quickly um, by uh, some very, very uh, polite people who listened to me and then uh, listened until I finished my little piece, my little party piece, whatever it was, and then went on to playing um, music that wasn't about technique and wasn't about fast and furious and tricky tunes and all these things and after a couple days of that I mean it sinks in real fast or you leave and I stayed for three years and I did not start another tune I did not write another tune I didn't write another tune for over a decade because I was so um, humbled by by that and I was lucky because I got it not everyone does but I gave myself the opportunity and I went there and I listened to it and I think it for me it comes back to the voice if you can't, and if you think about talking about these young players, you're talking about these super groups who have all the technique, ask them to sing a, a tune. And that's for me where it really comes down to. Because if you can't sing the tune slowly, like you would as you're walking down the street to a pace you can walk to, then you really don't know it. And I think for me, that's what, that's where it always comes back to for me is really in, it's in your body. And, and you can't just learn the notes and play it a million miles an hour. You have to know really the tune and the character and what it says. And that's something you only get by with time and experience and having the good fortune to be around um, experienced, um, wonderful musicians. And it doesn't matter about technique. And you were talking about in San Francisco how it's getting harder and harder to get an audience. And we're talking an audience of 100 people for yeah. folk music. This thing we're talking about. So I guess maybe I see this almost blip. We talked... We started by talking about the folk revival. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I almost see this thing where, you know, somebody, I don't know who said it, but folk music was never created with the intention of gain. It, it didn't start from that idea. It came from meeting other needs that we have. Mm-hmm. 
But there was a time when some people could make a living, a modest living, but they could make a living as folk musicians. But then again, as different, as I said, uh, people who make decisions as to who gets hired or what gets played on the radio, if that idea, and that's really what I was talking about, if their sense of what they think folk is, if they don't understand it, then the public is told, I mean, it's almost like the shepherd and the sheep kind of metaphor, but almost maybe the folk world is going back into the folk idiom in the sense that you can't really make a living. I I interviewed uh, several people from Ireland. One was a fiddler, and he said, uh, we all make CDs now. None of us think we're ever going to sell enough to ever get the money back for doing it, but you, you have to do your CD. You have to have that. It's your music, and you want it in the world, but we don't really expect to make a living from it anymore. We're just, it's what we do. Um, it's well, a tough uh, subject, but anything about the livelihood of this? Well, it, it's it's almost impossible to to unless you're very very lucky, and and uh, groups like the Chieftains, I think, got lucky. They had a patron very early on, um, and uh, they they were they were able to to make the break from having full time jobs to being musicians who could make a good living. And that's really the exception rather than the rule. It, it's just you have to make too many compromises if you want to make a living, really, To for most musicians to keep enjoying the music. The compromises are too great. Alan Jabour, um, who is a great fiddle player, Appalachian fiddle player, he was director of the American Folklife Centre at the Library of Congress for a couple of decades. And he was in, in a position where he could have perhaps been a professional musician, and he made a decision not to be. He said, I love my music too much to become a professional musician. And he said he sat down one day and calculated roughly the number of hours he'd be playing per week if he was a professional musician. When you add all the, that time packing your gear, getting on the road, getting to the airport, getting to the railway station, getting on the plane, getting to the other side, picking up your bags, renting the car, getting to the hotel, checking doing, into the hotel. Doing checking, the radio interview. Uh, doing the radio interview, <laughs> going to the sound check, dealing with the sound people, waiting for the gig, doing the gig, selling the CDs, packing up, going back to the hotel. He figured he'd be playing uh, maybe maybe one and a half, two hours of music a, a, a day maximum. Mm-hmm. And he'd play a lot more at home. Absolutely. But he actually sat down and did the calculations. Most of us don't. And I think he was very practical and also, you know, very wise. I mean, all my heroes, they all have have day jobs. So they're not professional musicians. The people I really love their music, none of them are professional musicians. And I mean, I'm I'm probably one of the only people I know who, who have earned most of their, their living for my entire life. Um, well, most my my... My work has been my music, but I've subsidized my music. I've had a, at least a 12,000 square foot commercial loft in New York and subdivided it to artists. And I lived rent free in New York. And that's how I was able to survive. And I did things like that in London. And you you get creative. And otherwise, like Mick says, then you have to go, you have to compromise too much. I mean, you're kind of, and the, the gatekeepers that you talked about, about who are you know, these festivals, festivals, you're talking about popular music, pop music. And so this is not what this is. And I don't think we can expect um, big festivals necessarily that are attracting tens of thousands of people 
to to have real traditional music there. This belongs, it was born in the homes and it's a social thing that's in this setting here in a living room. I mean, I played with the Sharon Shannon Band and she, we played huge festivals all over the place in Glastonbury and Cambridge and traveled all over and we had bass and sometimes we had drums and we had horn sections and it was something completely different. And I mean, I really enjoyed it, but it certainly wasn't Irish traditional music the way that, that so, I, I, I love it. So when you perform tonight at Traditions Cafe, there's no laser light show that goes with this? No. No, it broke down yeah. oh. in Seattle, so we're stuck tonight. Now well, we just have are, to play music with the each people other. I hope people aren't disappointed yeah. by those tickets. Mm-hmm. Thank I mean, you. This yeah. has been... Well, well I just... When, uh, being, being a professional musician, I just say, you know, because um, I have been a professional musician my whole life, but I've been so lucky. I grew up... You know, here I am, a, a, a female fiddle player of a certain aesthetic look in an era where there happened to be hiring f- female fiddle players uh, for one of the biggest shows around the world. And I got hired to play Riverdance, and it, it brought me to New York, and it gave me, a, it gave me a, 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 you know, a salary. And from that, I got work for the next 20 years with all different kinds of bands, because um, not only because I played with Riverdance, but because Riverdance even exists, it created an entire genre, and it created a, um, a, a, I was able, it created a, a, a role that was employable. That's pure luck. Had I been born male, or been born, you know, a, a different, I'd been had a, a different shaped body. I would never have been hired, and I'm very aware of that fact. I have three musicians, three brothers who are all incredible musicians. They never will have that particular opportunity. So that's just pure luck. I have two daughters now who then, and they, I love them to play music, but I wouldn't wish them to play professionally on anyone because like Mick says he, 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 you know most of the joy is out of it and the people that we love to play with we, we have day jobs and to, and to get together um, once a week or twice a week is an absolute honor and a joy and we treasure those moments and um, and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon this has been delightful you've got a concert tonight so we've taken a lot of your time thank you oh, so thank much you. thank enjoy you enjoy the conversation yeah And before we tie the ribbon on this Celtic-inspired podcast, I have a short poem I want to share with you. Mick talked about the popularity of poetic recitation when he was a youth in Ireland, what is often called the party piece. Well, when Paul and I visited Ireland in 2017, we happily found that venerable tradition was still alive. And although this has nothing to do with violins or music as such, it's funny, and I think you will enjoy it. The poem was written by Willie Joe Mealy, and he recited it at a house party hosted by our dear friends Brian and Mari Dooley, following a concert that Paul and I performed at the Patrick Cavanaugh Center for Poetry and Storytelling in Inniskeen, Ireland. This is um, a poem I wrote a few years ago. I was at Mass one Sunday, and there was a little girl um, acting up, which they normally do in the... The seats behind me, and uh, when I when I got home, I I put pen to paper. So this is called Sunday Mass. He raised the Eucharist. We bow our heads, thump our chest. A lady's cough breaks the silence, followed by a man's sneeze. More silence. A child screams. Mother and father try to calm her. She throws her soldier three seats up. The father gives her a two-euro coin. That lands in the aisle. He attracts her attention 
with a large set of keys dangling from his belt. She lifts them up in her hands and lets them fall. I want them, she demands. The distressed father gives them to her straight away. She slaps them on the newly sanded seat. Every bang and scrape, followed by a squeal, a laugh of enjoyment. The father tries to retrieve the keys, offering his mobile phone instead. The mother roots in her handbag, offering a tube of lipstick. No deal. A brief silence. The little girl counts the keys in the bundle. Mother and father wink at each other, pleased at the silence. She then places them in her mouth. The father removes them. This irritates her. She screams again, bangs and scrapes the seats again. Scratches appear. The sun shines through the east side of the stained glass windows, sends purple and yellow colours around the congregation. Communion over. The priest reads the notices. Next week's change, mass times. The children's camp. Church cleaning. The sponsored race for the new swimming pool. And a reminder to parents not to allow their children any sharp objects to play with in mass, such as car keys and the likes. And he goes on to remind them. Not too long ago, car keys were rare and door keys too because few people had a motor car and they did not use house keys. We had a society then that could be trusted where the fire never went out, where the latch was the lock and the half door was kept closed only to keep out the dogs and hens. There was a welcome in the house and the kettle sang on the hob. Now it's different. Two or three cars to one house, a variety of locks on the door, back and front. And before you can get to any door, it's possible that the gate is locked as well. And after a brief conversation with the gate post, you might be allowed in, with a warning of two Rottweilers. Yes, the times have changed all right, and we wonder is it for the better or what? As I said... Great work went into the restoring of those seats. It would be a great pity if anyone was to damage them. It would just mean we would have to raise the weekly envelope contribution. Surely you are hard-pressed during these difficult recession times. Just to finish. Next week's collection is for the starving children in the third world. Please give generously. One never knows the wheel keeps turning. We might be glad of the latch and the half door yet. Now, where was I? Uh, yes, just to remind you that we will soon be preparing for our awesome mission. But we will wait until the All-Ireland is over first. Up till Kenny. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater, 
with additional help from our daughter, Emily McHugh. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For information about this podcast and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. We would also like to thank Sean Williams, Professor of Ethnomusicology at the Evergreen State College, and her husband David, who kindly offered us their home so we could record this interview, even banishing the cats to the bedroom so we could have the living room to ourselves. It's folks like Sean and David who help keep Rosin the Bow going. Thank you.